KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. In the United States, one in 36 children were diagnosed with autism in 2020, according to the CDC. Back in 2000, that number was one in 150. Now, according to the CDC, once again, this is due to improvements in testing, especially for children that have traditionally faced barriers in obtaining services. If you don't know which children are in need of that intensive early intervention, many children are getting to be much too old before they're identified to take advantage of those earliest years. Dr. Diana Robbins is the director of the A.J. Drexel Autism Institute. She helped create the Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers, or MCHAT, one of the most commonly used autism-specific screening tools for young children. Most of the questions are really asking about social engagement. These questions are purposely designed for parents to just say yes or no to the child's usual behavior. I'm Matt Leon, and today on K1W News Radio In Depth, we talk about the importance of early screening for autism and what goes into developing early detection tools. How is autism defined right now? Autism is a neurodevelopmental condition. It's actually complicated when you ask how it's defined because originally it was defined within the medical community as a diagnosis and a disorder. And there are still some aspects of autism work that follow that path. Autism is also defined now by the neurodiversity movement and autistic self-advocates as a condition that goes far beyond a disability and really encompasses a profile of strengths and areas of challenge that help people understand more about what makes them tick if they are, in fact, autistic. Do we even today have a full appreciation for how broad this spectrum is of where people fall on it? I think the answer is no. We don't have a full appreciation. There's always more to be learned and understood. I think, again, it also depends on what perspective you're coming from. If you are approaching this from the medical diagnosis perspective, then we do have a fair understanding of the reach of the spectrum because to be diagnosed with a disorder, one has to identify some aspects of disability or dysfunction that are impeding achieving one's life goals. And so within that medical diagnosis, I do think we have a sense of the spectrum and it is vast. There are very different balances of strengths and challenges for individuals on the autism spectrum that really, it's not even a linear spectrum. Think about it in three dimensions. From that perspective, we do have a sense of the scope. But if you're thinking about the neurodiversity movement more broadly, where you don't have to have disability per se, then I think we have not yet really figured out the boundaries or how far in any direction the spectrum can reach. How well are we doing at screening for autism right now? And and how far have we come? Absolutely. Well, much of my career has been focused on screening and early detection. And let me first step back and tell you the reason. There's lots of evidence that children who get early intervention have improved outcomes across a whole range of aspects of their functioning. So one example is that children who learn how to communicate fluently, whether that's through spoken language or other communication methods like sign, have better outcomes in terms of independence, the ability to learn, the ability to engage with others, to live independently, all all of those factors. And one of the barriers to 
giving access to early intervention is if you don't know which children are in need of that intensive early intervention, many children are getting to be much too old before they're identified to take advantage of those earliest years when their brains have the greatest plasticity and the greatest ability to modify the way they're learning from people around them. If we look back over, say, 20 years, I would say we've made great strides in improving early detection because tools only started to exist for the earliest identification of children with higher likelihood of autism about 20 years ago. And so in the beginning, it felt like an unsurmountable obstacle to convince, say, primary care providers, which are usually pediatricians or pediatric nurse practitioners, to employ screening in part of their usual workup at those well-child visits. Since, I would say, the last decade We've seen much more uptake of screening. And the tool that I developed with my collaborators is now the most widely used tool for sure in the United States, but maybe even in the world to detect children at high likelihood of autism when they're toddlers. That being said, we're not done. There are many, many challenges. And I would say the fact that people are using the tool is a a huge improvement from where we were 20 years ago. But it turns out that many folks are not using the tool as it was intended. And when you use a tool differently from the way it was developed and validated, it becomes much more shaky whether you can actually interpret the results. So this tool that you developed, this is the MCHAT. Describe MCHAT, what it stands for and how it's utilized. Absolutely. So the name of the tool is the Modified Checklist for Autism in Toddlers, and we call it MCHAT for short. In our conversation, when I say MCHAT, I actually mean a combination of the original MCHAT and also the MCHAT revised with follow-up or MCHAT RF, which is a mouthful. So I'll just say MCHAT to mean both of them. And this is a very brief, inexpensive tool that primary care providers can use when they are just doing their well visits. So the tool basically asks parents to answer some questions about their child's usual behavior. And the tool is a very simple scoring system. In seconds, you can look at it and see if the child's at high likelihood, meaning some additional steps are needed, or at low likelihood, which means the tool is not identifying concerns about autism, but if the parent or the pediatric clinician have concerns, they should be followed anyway. But if the child does score in the high likelihood range, there's first a set of structured questions called the follow-up. And that's because we cast a broad net. So if we want to screen every child at, say, the 18-month checkup or the 18 and 24-month checkups, as the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends, The first thing you do is you throw this net out there for every single child and you pull in a group of children who need some additional clarification. That's where the structured follow-up comes in. So for children who show some concerns for autism, you want to ask questions of the parents that allow them to clarify their answers. You offer some examples to make sure the parents understood the questions fully. And then based on that, you rescore the tool. If the child still scores in the high likelihood range, what we are recommending is that the pediatric clinician immediately makes two different kinds of referrals. The first kind of referral is for a diagnostic evaluation. And that's where autism experts can spend much more time than is normally allocated for a well-child visit, getting to know the child, the parent, doing some formal testing, interviewing the parents to make a decision about whether the child has autism or perhaps has a different kind of developmental delay that would be better suited to a different kind of early intervention. The second kind of referral is to get that early intervention started right off the bat. In the United States, we have Part C from IDEA, and that basically means that every single state has a system for early intervention in place. 
And a parent can call and initiate the process even before they get a diagnosis. Now, the reason why we don't want to only do that early intervention referral is usually the way the early intervention system works, kids will get a low dose of nonspecific intervention. So they might get an hour of speech therapy or some occupational therapy. But the evidence shows that children who are diagnosed young with autism would benefit from more intensive autism-specific intervention. And so you work on those two paths in parallel, so you're not waiting on one to start the other one, but they can inform each other to really support the best outcomes for each child. The questions on the test, can you share what some of them are, give a general sampling of what they're looking for? Absolutely. Most of the questions are really asking about social engagement. So questions like, is your child interested in other children? Does your child point to show you things? And there are two different kinds of pointing. So there's one question about pointing to ask for something like, oh, I want that cookie and I can't reach it. And then there's a second kind of pointing, which is just to share interest, not to try to obtain it. Like, ooh, look at that cool airplane in the sky. The child's not asking for the airplane. They're just drawing your attention to it. These questions are purposely designed for parents to just say yes or no to the child's usual behavior. And the reason for that, we started with a couple of options and we found that parents gravitate towards the middle answers. And if you force the question to be, what's the child's usual behavior? If the child once has pointed, the parent should still say no, because the usual behavior is that the child's not yet pointing. We need to take a break. We will have more with Dr. Diana Robbins right after this. This is KYW News Radio in depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio in depth, continuing our conversation with Dr. Diana Robbins, director of the A.J. Drexel Autism Institute in Philadelphia. So the research you've done recently kind of looked at how effective the tests are when utilized correctly. Am I am I classifying it properly? So we actually looked at the literature that utilizes the MCHAT in different ways. So it's not quite so easy to say correctly, incorrect, but what we did is called a systematic review and a meta-analysis. And what the systematic review part means is that we identified a complex set of search terms and we looked through article databases to try to find every article that might meet our inclusion criteria. So we were looking for papers that use the MCHAT or the MCHAT RF They had to use it on children who were not yet diagnosed. They had to include at least 10 children who were identified with autism. So we didn't want case studies. And then there were a few other inclusion criteria. And once we amassed our articles, then we could comb through them and start understanding how they used the tool. And the meta-analysis piece of that paper is doing a statistical analysis of the findings across all of the papers that meet the inclusion criteria to understand the overall pooled findings. And so that can be a very powerful tool because any one or a couple studies may not have enough information to draw these sweeping conclusions. But when you put all of the studies data together, you can generalize beyond any individual study that's included. So one of the exciting things is the number of papers that met our inclusion criteria. To give you context, a lot of other systematic reviews or meta-analyses include fewer than 10 papers. And again, the criteria are outlined and you can see the author's process of how many titles or abstracts they scanned initially and what things got ruled out for what reasons. But lots of times the pool at the end is really quite small. And we ended up with 50 papers published around the world, only a few from my own team 
that use the MCHAT in the way we were defining. And one study had two samples. So there's 50 papers, 51 studies or samples that, that we were able to analyze. And so some of those did things exactly as we would have intended when we first developed the MCHAT. But a lot of them did things a little bit differently. And what we were interested in measuring across this whole body of studies is which of those deviations or variances matters. And it turns out pretty much all of them matter. What are those variances, those deviances? And talk to me as a layman what they mean and how they kind of shifted things. First, let me explain a little bit about how we decide if a screening tool is a good tool. We look for a couple of key metrics to understand how the tool performs. Anytime you're trying to develop a screening tool, you have the screening result. So a positive result means a higher likelihood of that condition. A negative result means a lower likelihood of that condition. But a screener is not definitive. It's Remember, it's just casting that net to see who needs a further look. So you also have the final diagnostic outcome or the classification. So some people will screen positive and they will really have the condition you're studying. So those are considered true positive cases. Some people will screen negative and truly not have the condition you're studying. So those are true negatives. It would be great if somebody could develop a screening tool that only had true positives and true negatives. That would be a perfect tool, but it doesn't exist. So the other two classification buckets that you fall into are a false positive. So you screen positive, but you don't really have the condition of interest or a false negative, which means you screen negative, but you really do have the condition of interest. And so one can use the classification of all of the people in your study into these four groups, two positive groups, two negative groups, and evaluate how well the tool is performing. So the two key metrics are sensitivity and specificity. So sensitivity is the ability of your tool to find people who have the condition of interest. So you want to find more true positives than false negatives. The flip side is specificity. It's your ability to find the opposite of the condition. So it could be wellness, it could be non-autism when it's truly not present. And again, you want to find far more true negatives than you find false positives. And so there are little equations that you can calculate with actual numbers to get these scores. But in the case of autism and early detection, the American Academy of Pediatrics set a threshold of 70% for both sensitivity and specificity to deem that a tool is successful at screening for autism. And so one of the things that we wanted to know is there's wide variability in all of these 50 papers in terms of the sensitivity and specificity that they calculated from their samples. So we wanted to know what were some of the factors that influenced what kind of performance the tool showed in their sample. And so one of the factors that made a huge difference is when the autism cases were confirmed. So the majority of the studies we included used what we called concurrent detection strategies, meaning shortly after a child screened positive or showed other autism concerns, a diagnostic evaluation confirmed the presence or absence of autism. So if the evaluation happened within six months of the screening, we consider that to be concurrent detection. And so some studies used multiple strategies to find possible missed cases, those false negatives, to kind of draw in as many autism cases as possible. Some used another screener, some used pediatric clinician concern, parent concern. So there were a lot of different strategies, but the 
bulk of those studies couldn't evaluate all of the kids in the sample because there's many thousands of kids in some of these studies who screen negative. And if nothing else suggests possible autism, those kids were just presumed to be non-autism cases. The kind of flip side to the concurrent detection strategies are prospective strategies. And in those studies, the diagnostic confirmation or just evidence favoring diagnostic confirmation takes place when children are much older. So an example is a study where parents of kids completed the MCHAT when they were 18 or 24 months old. And later when the kids were older, electronic health records were scoured to look and see who ended up with a diagnosis of autism. Sometimes children in those studies are eight or 10 years old when they find those records. So you can see that a lot of time has elapsed from the original screening to the diagnostic confirmation. So that makes a big difference in how sensitivity and specificity are calculated. Another example is who is sampled in the first place. So low likelihood samples are samples that are not selected based on any prior criteria. So if you say all children who attended 18-month well visit will get the screener, that's a low likelihood sample. In contrast, high likelihood samples are subsets of children where there already may be some reason for concern that they could be developing autism. So examples are children who already have an older brother or sister on the autism spectrum, children born premature, or children already referred for early intervention services. So tool performs differently in low likelihood versus high likelihood samples because the samples themselves are different. So this is not a shocking finding, but it was really helpful in this large collection of studies to be able to point to these specific factors and how they influence the metrics about how the MCHAT's performing. So you talked about that 70% threshold for whether a tool is useful. Through this research, do you have numbers, like percentages that showed the effectiveness of the MCHAT just to give us some context of where your research showed it fell? I'll start by saying that we calculated sensitivity and specificity from each paper that was included. But then the meta-analysis technique actually puts them all together and comes up with what they call the pooled values. So pooled across all of the samples. And so the pooled sensitivity came out to be 83%. The pooled specificity came out to be 94%. But there was a lot of variability within the individual papers. The highest sensitivity came out at 100%, which is probably more a factor of the way those authors did their studies. Nothing should really be 100%. And the lowest came out at 22% for sensitivity. I don't have the lowest specificity off the top of my head, but it's also, I believe, under 30%. Where can work be done to make these screening tools even better? I think there are a lot of different things that we can do to do better. One of the first things is, you know, the studies that, that we included, because they were research studies, they generally adhere to some basics of how the test was designed to be administered. So the original MCHAT had 23 questions. The MCHAT revised had 20 questions. They're all on one piece of paper. A parent just circles if it's a paper, yes, no, yes, no. If it's a computer screen, they're checking boxes, yes, no, yes, no. And the tool gets scored. In real life, there are a lot of deviations from that. So anecdotally from 
folks I've come across in my work, there are some pediatricians who will pick out five items that they like best and just ask those five and then kind of check a box like I did my screening. That's not screening because you only did five of the questions, not the whole set of questions. So you don't know how parents would have answered on the other items. I've seen situations where pediatric clinicians with the best of intentions override parent scores because they think the parent may have misunderstood and they're not taking the parent's answers at face value. And one of the most common deviations that we see in the community is when a child screens positive but the pediatric clinician hasn't seen a lot of concerning behavior in the checkup, they don't make those referrals for diagnostic evaluation and early intervention. And so one of our future endeavors is going to be to work on the implementation of the tool. So if it's used as it's intended, we can be more confident that the results are going to help us guide who needs to be seen and who probably is okay and doesn't need that expert evaluation. So that's one of the areas. Another thing that this meta-analysis really sheds light on that we've already been thinking about and trying to tackle is the fact that autism at 18 to 24 months may be a little bit different from autism at six or eight or 10 years old. And part of this is because neurodevelopmental conditions can emerge gradually. It's not like one day you don't have it and the next day you do. The symptoms can develop gradually. People's ability to notice them and identify them as emerging autism features varies from person to person and from context to context. And so it may well be that 18 and 24 months are the starting points to screen for autism, but that if we truly want to catch all of the autism out there as early as each case is detectable so that we can help children maximize their potential and minimize the challenges associated with autism, we probably need to screen more when they're older. And we're actually developing an upward extension of the MCHAT right now called the MCHAT S. S is for school age. And our target age is going to be entry into public school. So that kindergarten, first grade kind of timeline when children who've not been identified with autism might start to really feel some of the social challenges in a different way because the demands on a kindergartner for social engagement and social communication are much higher than the demands on a toddler. And so if they were able to sort of get by, even if they had some challenges because they also have strengths when they're younger, they may start to experience more difficulty in those early elementary school years. And if we could identify those children as soon as possible after they're entering kindergarten, before their challenges start to grow bigger and bigger, we can, again, offer the kinds of supports and intervention services to really minimize the challenges and and capitalize on their strengths. So that will get us closer. I still think that any quick screening tool like the MCHAT will never be perfect. There there will never be 100%. That's not attainable. But if we can think about identifying subsets of children at the different ages when it will be most readily apparent, and we can use that to point children towards the supports and services to maximize their potential, then I think we've really succeeded. How much should a parent kind of lean on themselves? I don't want to say to diagnose, but to kind of keep pushing for help, keep pushing for tools if they feel that maybe the test or the person administering the test, it's not getting the results that the parent really thinks are necessary? I would say parents are their children's best advocates. And as you so aptly put it, parents are the experts on their children. 
They know best how their child behaves in lots of different situations and contexts. And there are going to be times when a parent has a concern and they bring it to the pediatrician or the the pediatric nurse practitioner, and it doesn't really feel like they're getting their point across. I would say advocate for your child and push for the referrals to go see the expert if there's something you're worried about. Likewise, if there's concern, even if the screener is negative, remember that a screener cannot be perfect. So act on the concerns, even if the screener is negative. And on the flip side, if the screener is positive, act on the concerns. So it should be an either or, not an and. So if there's concerns from the parent or the clinician, or the screener suggests higher likelihood of autism, act on it and get the child looked at because the sooner people can figure out if there are certain supports or interventions that will really help them learn and engage, the better off the child will be in the long run. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio in depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.